Hello and welcome to the special bonus episode of The Dairy Age. Chagas are running a weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also being made available as a podcast. On this week's webinar, Stuart Charles speaks to Orla Keane about anthelmintic resistance in dairy cattle and farmer Bruce Thompson about how he has reduced anthelmintic use on his dairy farm. Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome to today's webinar. Um, this morning, we're talking to Dr. Orla Keane from Chagask in Grange, whose um, speciality is in infection biology, I suppose, and has uh, focuses particularly on antimicrobial and antilmintic resistance. And it's the antilmintic resistance aspect that we're going to uh, hear from Orla about today. And then we're joined by Bruce Thompson, who's a dairy farmer from just outside of Port Leash. Um, farming with his dad and farm manager Nick milking 230 cows and Bruce may or may not be familiar to people um, viewing in uh, that he has a particular interest in dung beetles um, and is carrying out an Oldfield scholarship which he's going to give a, a very little a brief rundown on uh, when he's talking in a minute uh, and uh, the main reason that we've Bruce on is because he's kind of reinforcing what Orla is going to be talking about in that he has significantly reduced his antelmintic usage in um, stock in the last number of years. So uh, we'll let Bruce tell you about that in due course and I'll hand over to Orla to give her presentation in relation to the concerns around antelmintic resistance. So antelmintic resistance has been identified in sheep and um, cattle in particular, um, but there is some suggestion there, Orla, that it's beginning to develop in dairy stock as well. So um, I'll let you give us the rundown. And I suppose we'll ask people not to ask specific questions in relation to their own herds and so forth, because it's very difficult for any of us on the call to give generic advice over a, a, a webinar type scenario like this. It really is information that has to be discussed with your own fate or advisor. Um, so just general questions, we're okay with them, but um, direct questions in relation to, I have such and such a problem, what should I do? We'd prefer if you'd actually put them to your own uh, vet, veterinary uh, professionals and so forth. Okay, so thanks, thanks Orla. Okay, so thanks very much, uh, Stuart. So I'm just going to speak a little bit today about anthelmintic resistance in gut worms in cattle and some of the recent work that we've done that have shown the incidence of this and, and the fact that it's probably more common than we previously thought. So I'll just give a little bit of background describing what anthelmintic resistance is and um, what is the level of it at the moment in Ireland and then what are some of the risk factors for the development of anthelmintic resistance because when we know what the risk factors are then we can take steps to mitigate that risk and to slow the further development of resistance and that'll lead into what are sustainable worm control strategies that will you know, um, preserve the efficacy of the anthelmintic products that we have in the long term. And I suppose one of the one of the things that's important about this is, you know, in the past there was a relatively um, generic solution to the problem of of these parasites, and that was the use of broad spectrum wormers. But as some of these wormers start uh, to fail, then we need probably more bespoke solutions and more tailored solutions and that those tailored solutions might be very very individual to the situation on a farm um, and i suppose you know unfortunately it means that a, a simple solution may no longer be available to us and it may be a more complicated solution in the future so of course grazing animals are exposed to a large number of parasites and the first one of concern is generally coccidia um, and that can do um, that can do you know significant damage if it's not appropriately managed and, managed and treated. 
um, but calves do ge generally develop immunity reasonably quickly. Then as you head into um, around this time of year, what you find is that it, it tends to be the gut worms and the lung worm that are of more concern to farmers. And then later in the season, depending on where in the country you are, fluke might be a concern. So what I'm going to discuss today will primarily focus on the gut worms. We'll touch on lung worm as well, because that tends to be a parasite of significant concern to dairy farmers. And there's probably, you know, increasing talk around lungworm and particularly around lungworm infections in mature cows. Okay, so, you know, they always say you can't have a parasitology talk without a, without a description of the life cycle. And I'm not going to be any different in that respect, but I think it is very, very important to understand the life cycle because when we understand the life cycle, that's when you can put in steps um, put into place steps that will break that life cycle or disrupt that life cycle. So what we've got here is the roundworm life cycle. So the roundworms are the gut worms and lungworm. Um, now there are some differences between them. So I'll just go through the life cycle first for the gut worms and then I'll just point out some of the differences for lungworm. So with the gut worms you've got um, mature adult worms in the gut so they're either in the stomach or in the small intestine. The female worms lay eggs. Those eggs pass out with the dung. They then hatch, the eggs hatch in the dung into L1 stage larvae, and then they further develop into L2 stage larvae. And these larvae feed on bacteria in the dung. They then develop into the L3 stage larvae, and this is the stage that can move. So this can migrate out of the dung onto the grass and up and down the grass to be eaten. And I um, it's important to note that the L3, it moves in water. So what that means is that when you get a prolonged dry spell, like we had earlier this uh, spring or maybe back in 2018, the worms remain trapped in the dung, so they can't get out onto the grass. So what you tend to find in those kind of weather conditions is that the worm burden stays low. Then when you get a significant amount of rain, the worms can get out of the dung onto the grass and be eaten. Now, the amount of time that it takes to go from an egg that passes out in the dung to an L3 infective larvae depends on the weather conditions, but it's generally about 10 days to three weeks. And it'll, it'll happen quicker, so it'll be closer to the 10 days when you've got warm, uh, wet conditions. The other thing to note is that most of the larvae are found in the soil or in the bottom five centimetres of the grass. And of course, that, that does have implications in terms of... Um, people's grazing heights. So when these L3 are eaten, they go to their preferred site of infection in the gut, so either the stomach or the small intestine, where they develop into L4 and L5, um, and then finally into adults that lay eggs, completing the life cycle. And it takes about three weeks from when an L3 is eaten by a, by a calf to when you will see eggs coming out in the dung. And that'll be important later on in terms of the strategic management, the strategic treatment um, with Antolympics. In terms of the lungworm, I suppose there's a few important differences in their life cycle. So um, in, in, in the case of the lungworm, um, when the L3 is taken in, 
it goes to the gut and then it can penetrate the gut and migrate to the lungs where it develops into adults. And those adults lay eggs. They're then coughed up and swallowed and they pass out in the dung, but they've already developed to L1 larvae by the time they are passed out in the dung. And I suppose, you know, one of the implications of that is in terms of the diagnostic testing. So if you're doing fecal egg counts, it's generally the gut worm counts only. And it's a separate test in terms of, in terms of lung worm. Um, the other thing about the um, lungworm larvae is that they can move a little bit further because they can also move on the spores of a particular fungus. That means they can, they can travel further um, from the dung and they can spread a little bit further than the, the gutworm larvae. Okay, so there's lots of different gutworms of cattle, but really there's, there's two of concern in Ireland and they are Cuperia and Ostertagia. And there's a few important differences between them. So Cuperia is generally, it's found in the small intestine and it, it's generally the main contributor to faecal egg count in first raising season calves. So the females lay a lot of eggs. So it tends to, to be the main contributor to the egg count, but immunity to Cuperia develops relatively quickly. Um, and it's considered less pathogenic to cause less disease than ostertagia. So ostertagia is found in the abomasum or the fourth stomach, and it can cause type one or type two disease. So you've got your traditional disease, which tends to, um, you know, occur in the, in the summer or in the autumn when you've got high worm burdens, but you can also have type two ostertagia. And that is generally a problem early in spring. So what happens is that the larvae, um, when they infect an animal, when you're in, in um, when it's autumn, they can sometimes sense the change and that they will then basically hibernate over winter in the um, abomasum of an animal. They emerge then the following spring and that's when you get this type two disease. And for ostertagia, a develop, immunity develops more slowly. So, you know, the challenge that's posed by these worms does depend on the time of year. So at the beginning of the year, um, you have larvae when, when animals are housed, the larvae, um, there's still larvae out on pasture and they, they overwinter on the pasture and they slowly die off. And what you find is as you get into spring and as the weather warms up, they start to uh, die off more quickly. And that's because, as I mentioned, this L3 infective stage, it, it's a non-feeding stage. So it has to survive on the energy reserves it built up as an L1 and an L2. And when um, the weather warms up, its metabolism increases and it uses up that energy faster. But of course, once calves are turned out, they start to pick up some of these larvae that have overwintered and then they shed eggs and the parasite life goes through its life cycle again. And so you get a buildup of eggs and larvae on the pasture, generally in the second half of the grazing season. Now, if you think of some, one of some of the traditional worm control plans, so something like the ivermectin, uh, three, eight and 13 week treatment. What this was doing, it was really, it was targeting the parasite life cycle. So what, uh, what this, was about was when calves were turned out. As I said, it takes about three weeks um, for them to start passing eggs out. So if you treat at three weeks, you prevent those eggs being passed. Ivermectin then has a two week period of persistency, followed by another three weeks before eggs will be passed. So if you again treat at eight weeks, you, you prevent those eggs being passed and the same applies at 13 weeks. So what this means is that um, this, this treatment program was really about preventing the buildup 
of larvae on the pasture in the second half of the grazing season. It was not about treating the calves, you know, they would not need treatment just three weeks after turnout. So this strategic program was about uh, preventing the buildup on, on pasture. Now there's a lot of different products that we use to treat for worms, but they all fall into one of three classes and they are the benzamidazoles or the white wormers, levanosol or the yellow wormers, and the macrocyclic lactones or the clear wormers. There's a number of different chemicals in each of the classes and I suppose what I've shown here is when each of these products was first released on the market and when resistance was uh, first reported. And that's important because what you will see is after and um, fairly shortly after each of these drugs was released on the market or each of these classes of amphalinthics was released on the market, resistance was reported somewhere in the world. Now, usually it was in sheep, um, but subsequently in cattle. And it just shows that parasites have a, have a real propensity to develop resistance. So what is anthelminthic resistance? Well, there's been a lot of talk recently about antimicrobial resistance and everyone is very aware of the um, the implications, the potential implications of antimicrobial resistance and the steps that we need to take to prevent um, development of antimicrobial resistance. But antelminthic resistance is something very similar. So while antimicrobial resistance is the ability of a bacteria to um, prevent the antibiotic from killing it, likewise, antelminthic resistance is the ability of a worm to survive uh, a dose with an antelminthic that should kill it. And it is a genetically inherited trait. So this means that resistant worms, they carry the genes for resistance and they pass those genes onto their offspring. And the antelminthics from the different classes, your white, yellow or clear wormers, they have different modes of action. But all of the white wormers share the same mode of action. So that means that generally when you've got resistance to one chemical or product in a class, you've got resistance to all of them. And now there are some slight exceptions within the macrocyclic lactone classes where sometimes we see resistance to one product, to one chemical, but not to another. But in general, uh, resistance to one product in a class means resistance to all of them. Okay, so what do we know about amphalinthic resistance in Ireland? Well, we carried out a study in 2017 and 2018. Now it was on dairy calf to beef farms, but some work carried out by the Department of Agriculture has um, kind of backed up some of the results that we found and there's there's no reason to believe that the um, that the results would be any different. These are the same parasites that infect all types of cattle. So there's no reason that to believe that the results would be any different on, on dairy farms. So we tested uh, the resistance status on a number of farms spread throughout the country. And this uh, just map here shows where those farms were located. So what did we do? Well, we did a fecal egg count reduction test. So we monitored the worm burden of the herd. So the farmer um, collected up to 15 individual calf fecal samples and sent them to us in Chagask. We then determined the worm burden of the herd using a fecal egg count. And when that worm burden was greater than 100 eggs per gram, we visited the farm. We used 40 calves on each farm and we took 20 calves and we took fecal samples from those 20 calves and we treated 20 with a white wormer. And the other 20, we again took fecal samples and treated with a clear wormer. We then revisited the farm two weeks later to collect fecal samples post-treatment. So that was what we did in 2017. 
In 2018, it was very, very similar. Only in 2018, we tested uh, half the calves with a yellow wormer. The other half, we also tested with the clear wormer. But while in 2017, it was ivermectin. In 2018, it was moxidectin that we tested. Okay, so this just shows some of the results here. So the first column there shows the number of farms that are um, the number of farms that we tested. So we had a number of farms enrolled in the trial and not all of them completed the trial. And there was a number of different reasons that, that farms dropped out. But the main one, I suppose, was lungworm. So these farmers were holding off treating calves until um, the fecal egg count reached the threshold to do the test. And of course, if they had any signs of lungworm before that point, then they had to treat um, they had to treat those calves for lungworm. And so some of them then didn't complete this test because they treated the calves for lungworm and it's the same products that treat for lungworm and stomach worms. Um, and so uh, they dropped out of the study. This is the number of uh, valid tests that could be analyzed. And this column here shows the prevalence of resistance. So 60% of the farms that we tested showed evidence of resistance to, uh, to the white wormers, the benzimidazoles. 18% showed evidence of resistance to levamazole or the yellow wormers. 100% uh, showed evidence of res resistance to ivermectin. So every farm we tested showed evidence of uh, resistance to ivermectin. Um, and again, a, a, a small scale study that was carried out by a number of people in the Department of Agriculture on dairy farms in the Kilkenny region. And they've also found that in the dairy farms that they tested, that all of the farms they tested also had um, evidence of resistance to ivermectin. And 73% of the farms had uh, resistance to moxidectin. In terms of the species, um, in 2017, when we tested the benzimidazoles and ivermectin, we found both major species, both Cuperia and Ostertagia, were resistant. Um, and I suppose this is of concern because Ostertagia can, um, as I said, it can effectively hibernate over winter in the animals. And the products that we use at housing um, are commonly these macrocyclic lactone products to remove the, the uh, arrested Ostertagia. And so if these products don't work, this, this is a cause for concern. In 2018, when we tested the levamazoles and moxidectin, only resistance cuperia were found, but that was because ostratagia was not present that year. And um, we think that that's probably a consequence of the weather in 2018, when it was a much drier um, year. I think everyone will, will remember the drought in 2018, and that seemed to affect the different species. So there was really no ostratagia present to test uh, whether those two drugs worked on, on that species of worm. Now, what's really important to note is that, um, so when I say there was evidence of resistance, that means that the wormer did not kill 95% or more of the worms. But of course, uh, the level of resistance varied according to the farm. So I've just put up here, um, you know, an example of five farms where we tested all of the different products. So if we look at this first farm here, farm number two, every product on this farm failed, but they failed to varying degrees. So for ivermectin, what this means is the worm count almost doubled between when we treated the animals and when we took the second sample. So that product is, is failing completely. It's, it's failing to kill any of the worms. Whereas if you look at something like levamisole, on this, on, on this farm, 
that product was still killing 92% of the worms. So the farmer would still see a benefit from using this product, but it would be important that they take steps now to slow the further development of resistance. And, you know, I think Bruce is going to outline later some of the steps that he's taken that will really help in terms of slowing the development of resistance. Then of course, the other farms like Farm 18, where, where three out of the four products were working and even the product that failed was still killing a significant number of worms. So I suppose great variation from farm to farm. In terms of sustainable worm control, what does that look like? Well, factors that influence the development of, of anthelminthic resistance are really any practice that gives the resistant worms a selective advantage over the susceptible worms. And there are four risk factors that we know about. And they are, what is the current level of resistance? How often are these uh, worming products being used? Is there underdosing? And where does the refugia come from? And the refugia is the proportion of the worm population that is not exposed to anthelminthic treatment. So just explain all of those in a little bit more detail. So in terms of the current resistance level, you can think of the development of resistance as, as, as like a slippery slope. So it goes quite slowly at the start and it develops quite slowly and then it accelerates and it develops faster and faster. So if your current resistance level is up here somewhere, resistance will develop more slowly and this is a great uh, situation to be in to be able to put in place steps that will that will slow this down further if you're already down here well then you're already on this slippery slope and it, it is actually harder to slow the development of resistance um, down here and quite often you know People think they will, they will, sure, they will see when a product fails. It, it will be obvious because the animals will fail to thrive after treatment. And you know, you'll you'll have quite if you wait till that point, you will already have high levels of resistance. Treatment frequency is always important. So if you think of a population of worms where the susceptible worms are in orange and the resistant worms in grey, every time you treat, you give the resistant worms an advantage and they grow and multiply and they become more common in the population. Underdosing is also another risk factor. So we know that um, people often underestimate the weight. If they're visually um, estimating weights, they quite often underestimate. So it's really important to weigh the animals that are to be treated or weigh at least a few of the, the larger animals and dose to the weight of the heaviest animal and to calibrate the, the dosing equipment. And the last one is refugia. And I suppose this is quite a complicated uh, concept but it's really crucial. It's probably the single most important factor in terms of slowing the development of resistance. And I suppose everyone will be, you know, important. Uh, everyone will be aware of the importance of having good genetics in a dairy herd. So this is really about the worm genetics and having good worm genetics. So if you think of a situation where you have poor refugia, so this here is the worm population on a farm, again, with the susceptible worms in orange and the resistant worms in grey. This is all the worms on a farm. So if you treat every animal on that farm with an anthelminthic, all the susceptible worms will be killed and only the resistant worms will survive. They'll shed eggs onto pasture and they will, those, those eggs will develop into resistant worms. If they go out onto very clean ground, so for example, something like reseeded ground, where there are very few worms on the pasture, that haven't been selected for resistance and so have the genes for susceptibility, what happens is that population of worms, now the majority of those worms carry the genes for resistance. And as that population um, continues to grow and reproduce, 
the majority of the worms in the population carry the resistance genes. If you contrast that in a, with, a, with a different situation where you've good refugia, so again, you treat some of the animals on the, on the farm and only the resistant worms survive. But in this case, they're diluted by lots of worms that still have the genes for susceptibility. And these worms can come from the pasture and they can come from animals that aren't treated. Then that population still remains largely susceptible and the drugs continue to work and resistance develops much more slowly. So it's really important to maximize refugia. And there's a number of ways to do that. And I think Bruce is probably gonna outline some of these later. Um, but some and, and, and what people choose to do might depend on their system. But things like minimizing treatments of older and immune animals um, is important in terms of they are a great source of refugia. They generally have immunity to worms. They generally don't need treatment. Um, they will shed a small number of eggs, but they produce a large amount of dung, so they're a significant contributor to refugia. Of course, if older or immune animals are a source of refugia, then you know, grazing the, the treated young stock and the untreated older stock over the same pastures would be important. Leader follower systems um, will also help. Mixed grazing where it's possible with sheep, that may not apply to a lot of people, but it might apply to some. That's They're another source um, of reducing the the, the need for antlaminthics because in that case what you find is that the worm species that infect sheep are different to the ones that infect cattle so they will kind of clean up the pasture after each other and not dosing and moving to clean pasture is important when you dose and then move you've got very low refugia and this will select for resistance and again really important uh, to use these antlaminthics appropriately so dose only when necessary. So there's two approaches to dosing. There's the strategic approach where you're disrupting the parasite life cycle. So that's something like the 3, 8 and 13 week ivermectin program that I outlined earlier. And that's about disrupting the parasite life cycle rather than uh, the animal needing treatment. There's also targeted treatment. And that's treating the animal as needed based on indicators like performance, like whether they're meeting the performance targets, um, or maybe um, fecal egg counts, or in, in some cases, anti-ostratagia, ELISAs from um, results. Those, those kind of um, approaches, would you would be targeting the treatment when the animals need it. Use the right product, so use an appropriate product. And you know there is evidence from some work that's been done um, in Chagas that shows that some farmers are using an inappropriate product. So for example, they're using a flucicide to treat for worms or a wormer to treat for flucicide or using a combination worm or flucicide when there's no need, when they're only treating worms. So use the right product and use a product that works. And as I've just outlined, you know, um, what works will depend on your own situation on your farm. Uh, it does involve testing to find out what works, but it's really important to use a product that's effective. Give the correct amount and give it the right way. Where possible, use orals over injectables over porons and minimize or um, reduce the use of persistent products where you can or eliminate the use of persistent products when you can. Again, they really reduce refugia. Okay, so in terms of worm control, just some general principles. Dose only when necessary, so that's either your strategic or based on something like performance or egg count. Know what works on your farm and use an effective product. Select the right one for the worms that you're targeting. Administer it correctly. 
Use grazing management where you can to reduce the exposure of stock to worms and to maximize refugia and have a biosecurity protocol for any bought in animals. Okay, so I think that's probably all I have to say for now. Um, okay, so that's super Orla, that's a great talk. Um, I suppose what is it, uh, is it fair to say that probably the convenience of porons is probably lending to this a lot? And yeah. that we might need to review our, we might yeah. just need to take it on the chin and kind of catch them by the throat and put it back yeah. there. Absolutely. So, so I suppose the thing about porons is that you're effectively giving a, you know, a, a lot of what you're doing is giving an oral dose by a different manner. So a lot of the way that they take that product in is, is by grooming and licking. A certain amount will be absorbed through the skin, but an awful lot of it is, is through grooming and, and licking. And that means that it's much more difficult to control the dose rate. So it comes back to this issue of not underdosing. So it's much easier to control the dose rate if you're given a product down the throat. If you're banking on, on a pour-on for them to take it in, what you'll find is it's, it's much more difficult to control that. Obviously, the weather conditions can have, a, um, can have an effect on that as well. And it's really important to follow the instructions if you are using a pour-on and, and to not administer it at the, um, at the wrong time. But preferably, if, if possible, and oral, orals prefer, preferable, then an injectable, then a pour-on. And of course, some of the products don't come in oral formulations, you know, so it's, it's not possible to use an oral for every product. But ideally, we should be in, in if you have the option, you should be looking at oral first yeah. and then injectable at the late next. Yeah, you should. And most of the macrocyclic lactones aren't available on the market in oral formulation. I mean, they are for sheep, but not for cattle. It's, it's, and so, you know, as I said, and, and they're probably the most common or most popular class of product so it's not always possible to use an oral so i would say oral injectable forum okay so um a question in from Ailish moriarty and Kerry. then um uh the benefit of using milk screening for to target treatment of worms and their capability to test bulk and individual milk for presence of lungworm are they yeah. useful or so i think so the 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 that's that's ELISA screening and um, they are useful but they can be difficult to interpret because really that's about an, an um you know that's about the response to the parasite quite often what you're looking at there is an immune response so I think in that case they can be useful but it is really important to get some kind of veterinary interpretation with the results because it's really important to look at it in the context of the animals the risk period where they've been grazing and all of those other factors as well when they were last treated what they were last treated with yeah, so um, I know from looking at some of those in the past as well, that there's a kind of a graph that they have with them and that there's a tipping point where they suggest that you would go down the route of actually going in with a treatment. Yeah. So we, people need to be very conscious of, and I know it often says it on, on a lot of those results as well, that people shouldn't make decisions in isolation, just yes. making a one a, a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my yes. God, the cows have worms, but it isn't actually that significant. They're bound to have worms. They're bound to have worms, a little bit of worms, is, is important for them to develop their immunity. So low levels are, are not a problem, they're a good thing. It's when they reach a, a threshold that they impact performance that they become a problem. So, you know, it's, it's really about kind of detecting that threshold when they pass that threshold and that's going to depend on a number of factors. Yeah, very good. There's an excellent question here from Justin. Um, is there a chart or a table available for the best time to check for or dose for worms? So we say, 
there's vaccination kind of charts there that MSD do that people can use as reminders for them. Is there any kind of good, when should we check for the calves? Does it depend on when you turn them out? When should you check for the cows, etc.? Yeah, so 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 it will, um, and it's it is it's also so it's very variable from year to year, and I suppose that's one of the difficulties in terms of of checking, in terms of kind of putting out a blueprint in terms of when to check. So generally, um, as I said, there's two approaches. There's the strategic approach. So if you're going with the strategic approach, something like the three eight and thirteen week program, that that's a set program. Um, but the problem with that now is. You know, that's an ivermectin specific problem when we've got high levels of resistance to ivermectin. So it's possibly not suitable anymore for a lot of people. So if you're going with a targeted treatment, that's when you're targeting the animals when they need it and when you want some kind of performance indicator. You probably don't need to start until at least May or, or June, probably. And when we've monitored egg counts on herds and there's we very, very rarely see the egg count reach a threshold that would require dosing before June. Um, after that, then we would probably be monitoring every every couple of weeks, um, and we'd be using um, egg counts to determine the group uh, levels of, of of the group kind of worm burden. One of the important things to bear in mind, I suppose, is that if you have treated, or if the weather remains very very dry, that would probably push out how often you need to test. But we were te we're testing about every two weeks. So we should really move away from the kind of the, the, I know I was talking to a person recently who was treating every four weeks, basically. And I said to them, God, do you really need to like, you're, it's, all, it's the work and the effort of it as much as anything yes. else. Like, Absolutely. Uh, no, they, they, they shouldn't need to. Um, that, that would be, you know, quite unusual. So that, that does a couple of things like that really minimizes your refugia. You're selecting all of the time for the resistant worms. You're putting this constant selective pressure on and killing off the susceptible worms. So dosing that regularly will be a risk factor for the development um, of resistance. But the other big thing about it is, and this is really, I think, important in terms of the, the lungworm context is you're also not giving the animals a chance to develop their own immunity. They need some exposure to these parasites to develop immunity. And, you know, we're seeing increasing um, talk about coughing cows and things like that. And one of the things that will lead to a lack of immunity in, in mature animals is if they don't get build up their immunity as calves and heifers, and if they're not exposed to enough parasites to build up that immunity. So um, there, there should be no need to dose every month. Okay. Now, the next two questions are linked to um, Sean McArdle and Kieran Corton. Sean is asking um, the long-term injectables for calves, are they a good or a bad idea? We knew this one was going to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, and should he, should he still use a white dose? And a linked question then from Kieran Corton is, uh, what's your opinion on the Repidose bolus, which is kind of a, a bolus version of the long-term injectable? So my my opinion of the long-term in, in the long-term persistent products is that I would advise staying away from them if possible. Um, you know, the, the thing about them is they've got they've got two effects really in terms of the development of resistance. So the first one is because they have this long period of persistency, they're putting this constant selective pressure on for the development of resistance. Because during that whole persistency period, every worm that's eaten by that animal, if the products are working now, every worm that's eaten by that animal that is susceptible is killed by the product and every worm that is resistant is survives, survives 
and those worms are uh, what's lay, what are laying eggs and what is going out onto your pasture. So you've got an extended period in which the resistant worms have a huge uh, selective advantage. The other thing about it is then is because of this period of persistency, what you find is that the drug level tails off slowly in the, in the animal system. And so as it's reaching this kind of tail off, you've got an effect that's similar to underdosing, where there are kind of suboptimal levels of the drug in the animal system, and that can also accelerate the development of resistance. And they're not developing immunity. So I would certainly limit them. I would eliminate them if I can, and if not, I would limit them. Limit okay, the so, so they're contributing to poor refugia, basically, and... Yeah. Okay, like and a bit like the porons, they're extremely convenient, but they're going to actually create a bigger problem in the longer yeah. term. So they'll work in the short term potentially, but they're going to create massive problems for us long term. Yeah, and often the first indication that these products aren't working is that they lose their full persistency. So quite often, you know, if you check normally for a for a microcyclic lactone, most of these persistent products fall into that class. You know, you check 14 days afterwards for an egg count. For the persistent products, what you might find is there's no eggs after 14 days, but there is maybe after 20 days or 30 days. So quite often the first indication is as resistance develops, they start to lose their persistency as well. Okay, so, okay, so there's, there's a, couple of, yeah. a couple of more questions here. It's great to see them coming in. So um, what, what do we do if uh, some of the calves are coughing now, which is obviously lungworm related issue, but if you're not yeah. sure in relation to whether you have resistance or not to in terms of so, gut worms yeah so i suppose that's quite that's quite a tricky one so the first one with the with the lung worm i suppose is that uh, obviously there's a there's a number of different diseases that can cause calves to to cough but but lung worm is a very very serious one and it's very very unpredictable um, and i suppose if there is a kind of a clinical suspicion of lung worm based on the signs and the risk factors and everything else then the advice in that case would be to go in and treat. I think the risks of not treating are, are too high and the whole herd would need to be treated, not just the, the coughing calves. All of the calves would need to be treated. Um, I suppose in terms of resistance, as of yet, we haven't seen resistance in lungworm or we haven't confirmed resistance in lungworm. The concentration, generally lungworm are easier to kill with, this, with these products, particularly with the macrocyclic lactones. They're easier to kill than the stomach worms. So they would have to develop much, much higher levels of resistance to, to survive the drug concentrations that they're getting. Um, so we we haven't confirmed resistance in lungworm that said obviously every time you use the product for lungworm you are exposing the stomach worms to that product and that's that's kind of inevitable the only other solution is the lungworm vaccine which particularly in calves doesn't suit people because there is um, the vaccine the vaccine schedule involves a vaccine at, at 8 weeks at 12 weeks and turnout two weeks later so you know it's very late for turnout but it can work in autumn born calves or maybe in in heifers or in in older animals okay and i suppose is, is it a case of maybe if if you do get the lungworm kind of scenario or the coughing calf that you have to treat that you follow up with a test afterwards to see then yeah. what's the impact on the stomach worms of what you've used yeah yeah so it's a, it's a good idea i mean you can you can take a dung sample for the to confirm the lungworm itself although you can have the larval stage of the lungworm causing disease so it may not be positive but certainly it is worth testing what's what's working for the for the stomach worms okay so there's just two questions um i'll go to siobhan cleans first uh, would you recommend using the long persistency product at housing so that the worms are cleaned out 
um, um, during the housing period and that animals have no worms in, in the shed and allow the lungs to recover when they get out into the fresh air. Yeah, so there should be no need to use a persistent product at housing because what the persistent, like if, if the, what, what you really want to use at housing is a product that works and, so, and kills all of the worms. Um, and so because there's no more at housing, because they're not continuing, continuing to take in more worms, there's no advantage of using the persistent product at housing. Um, now, the one thing I will say is to be aware of the fact that levamazole doesn't kill uh, arrested larvae. So as I said, for ostratagia, some of them can inhibit and kind of hibernate over the winter, and we know levamazole doesn't kill them. Um, so that would kind of rule out levamazole. But the, the advantage of the persistent products at grass is that they continue to kill incoming worms, but in housing you shouldn't have more incoming worms, so um, should be no okay. advantage of using them. Okay, so and then the final question is from Connor O'Leary, and I'll tie it together with a question that I was going to ask myself. Um, so Connor's question is, if you stop using one class of product, is there a period of time where the resistant worms to that product disappear? And the question that I wanted to ask then is, similar to sensitivity analysis, we'll say for, um, for cows, for milk and so forth, is there something like that available for worms that you can see if you're resistant to to um, the levamisols or the benzamidazoles in advance of actually that you don't go down the route of treating with the wrong product and then discover the resistance? Yeah, so, okay. So um, in terms of the first question, that's the answer to that is probably is no. There is no evidence at the moment that, that they revert. Um, so there's been studies done again a lot of these studies have been done in in sheep and that that have have shown where they didn't use a product so they had resistance to a white wormer they didn't use it for 20 years and when they went back and used it again there was still resistance to the to the white wormer um, so there's very very limited or no evidence for reversion to susceptibility if you stop to use the product um, some people think like really for that to happen the, 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 the worm that now has the resistance genes would have to have would have to be less fit. Um, there's a little bit of work going on in that area at the moment, but at the moment the indications are that you won't get reversion to susceptibility. Okay. Um, in terms of testing in advance, unfortunately, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, really, the tests at the moment involve treating uh, egg counts, treating, and then post-egg counts to see how many of the worms have been killed. Okay, so um, it just I suppose it emphasises maybe that if people feel that they're not getting thrived, that they do that follow-up test potentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and and great to have a herd health plan with your with your vet that kind of looks at all of aspects of parasite control. Okay, and getting good advice in terms of the product to use, of course, yeah, as well. Absolutely. Okay, so that's super, Orla. Thanks very much. You're going to stay with us anyway. Um, yeah. So we're going to hand over to Bruce. And uh, Bruce, you're just going to tell us about how you've gone about reducing your antelmintic uh, use in the last number of years. And I suppose also, as I said at the outset, give us a little bit of information in relation to your um, Nuffield Scholarship and your interest in dung beetles. And Orla mentioned them there. I can't pronounce the little explosive little things that project lungworm around the field. I, when I watch the nine o'clock news, I think of you, because I saw your picture on Twitter there a couple of weeks ago of the, of the little bacteria that are doing it. And they look like it on the, the intro to the nine o'clock news. They look very like them, I think. So I think of you when I see that. Well, it's, 
it's great to be remembered for being a fungus anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take you through what we're doing in our farm here. It, we're continually trying out new, new things, um, but yeah, just in, in terms of, of trying to reduce our, our um, aromatic usage. Um, I suppose before you start, Bruce, will you, you might just tell people why you kind of have an interest in it or why you developed an interest in it. Yeah, well, I suppose um, it's, it's probably back 10 years ago, um, myself and my dad uh, decided that we were using far too many animatics on, on the farm. And we seemed be, we were going in once a month and um, in the calves. And we, my dad just said, like, uh, at the time that he didn't have to use these, these men, this amount of animatics um, back in the heydays. So uh, we just decided at that stage to try and, and cut back on them. And... In at that stage, we we decided to take a more of a diagnostic approach to, to using the animatics, and I suppose that that's kind of what started started the ball rolling. And we we looked at different grazing strategies, and then that, that kind of threw me onto this animatic resistance and dung beetles, which I will talk about in a few minutes as well. Um, so that's that's where the interest started, and um, yeah, I suppose. Orla kind of talked about the animatic resistance there. We have three products in, in the that we can use in cattle. Um, but uh, yeah, we kind of have to treat them with respect as well because they're, they're very important products and we just need to make sure that they stay working for us. Um, so uh, we, we don't want to be using them as, as a management tool. We want to be using them as, as a treatment for disease and to make sure that they stay working. Um, there's no new products coming, coming along on, on the line. So we, we, have, we just have these basically three products to use. Um, so in order to make sure to stay working, we just have to reduce our usage of them. Um, basically, that's the, 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 the big story behind it. Um, so the way we look at it is uh, by building up immunity um, in calves to get them up to a cow stage that the cow should, should really be and uh, have, have enough immunity in them to, to fend off the parasites for the majority of the time. Uh, unless something goes wrong. Um, so yeah, with, with our calves then, they obviously haven't got immunity because they haven't had exposure to it. So we need to expose the calves to the, to the parasites and, and build up their immunity uh, without tipping the scales in the wrong direction so they don't get overexposed or underimmunitized. So yeah, to, to build them up, um, we need to, um, yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked there. The calves are, are the, the animals on the farm that are most at risk, but they're also the ones that are, are the biggest risk. So that they're producing parasites out, out of, their, out of their, their back end. So calves are going to leave more parasites on, on pasture than, than other cattle uh, typically. So that's that kind of uh, uh, stems on to this idea of keeping the calves moved. So um, the cows are moved once every three days and back fenced. Um, so the last number of years, there, we've come up with different ideas for uh, portable equipment. So um, yeah, the cows are on fresh grass the whole time. And here's what we were using last year for feeding meal. It's a, co a conveyor belt and electric fence. So we don't put that um, belt in the same spot every time they come out, out onto a paddock. So it's, it's moved continually because that area around there, if you were to look, you could imagine there as the calves are eating, leaving a lot of uh, dung pats behind them. So the next time they come back um, and you had that there in the same place, 
the calves are going to be around this area a lot. So, you know, okay, there's I'll that just, piece just, of grass. Just stop you there for a second now, because we can't see what your the the picture there is. Sorry. So yeah, that that was that was the first line I was going on there. That's the three yeah. products we have. Um, I was saying there, every cow is, is was once a calf. Um, so yeah, we, we have to um, build, build up their immune system and pasture. And here is our belt. I was talking about um, our, our portable equipment. So as you can see here, I was saying there behind the calves, you're going to leave a lot of dung paths on pasture. So this area. Uh, would typically have a lot of parasites in it the next time the calves come around. So we don't want the calves congregating around that area. So we, we try to avoid putting the calves back in, pick pick a spot in the field and the calves don't come back to this area at all if we can avoid it. Um, so this year we just splashed out and went for one of these lick feeders, which we're, we're quite happy with. It makes moving around feed, feed for calves a lot easier. And this is our, our uh, portable water trough. So that gets moved every three days as well. Um, with, we use a pipe reeler for moving around the water pipe. So it's, based, it's, it's moving the calves away from congregating in areas. Um, we don't let them under trees or if there's a wet corner in the field from a liver fluke point of view, we don't let them into that at all. So they avoid those, those risk areas. Um, so to identify risk paddocks then, we come up with this uh, traffic light grazing system. So you can see there, I have a, a map of, this is the grazing block of the calves. And you can see here the different colors. So we've, we've red, orange, and green. So we, we kind of have those mapped as being um, uh, different risk areas. So the, the red is, is high risk. So if we, we've been doing fecal egg counting, if the calves come back with a high fecal egg count, the paddock that they're on is, is, uh, is marked as red on the map. So this is continually evolving. So it's, 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 it's red after a high fecal egg count. Irrespective of what the fecal egg count is, um, behind the calves, we mark it as, as being orange because as, as I said to you before there, the, we see the calves as parasite factories. So that, that's a medium risk. And the green then is low risk. So if, if, uh, if we put silage on that or if uh, other stock had been grazing it uh, with the first grazing after coming out of a shed, so they should have low levels of, of parasites in them, we marked out those green. The trick then is getting them back from, from orange to green or red to, to orange. We do, do that in one step at a time. So that is done either by cutting silage off of it uh, grazing with other stock, uh, overwintering, um, or, or uh, grazing with another species, which we don't have the option of, unfortunately. But um, unless my neighbour's sheep break in, that's that's uh, that's the way they we, we bring them back to different colours. So here's the calves out grazing on on, on a paddock now. This is uh, this was yesterday, so they're. I'm happy enough with the condition that they're going ahead with uh, in terms of, of weight gain. So they're, um, they're hitting their targets in that regard. Um, here is our famous uh, fungus we were talking about. Uh, this is uh, your pilobolus. So if you can see here, these little droplets. Um, this this I, I grew in a controlled environment, uh, which was a bucket beside my milking parlor. Um, the, the lungworm actually um, swims up these 
these stalks here. Can you see the arrow on that? Can, yeah, yeah. Yeah, swims up and it climbs onto this little red dot, that or black dot. That black dot actually pops and uh, shoots out on, onto grass. Uh, it, it, it's a very efficient way of the lungworm getting onto, onto, um, onto grass. Um, diagnosis of, of lungworm is probably the trickiest um, from, from our point of view. Uh, what is, it's not tricky, it's just you, you need to be on top of your game with it um, because there's no, the, the, the science behind uh, getting a, um, diagnostics on it is, is uh, flushing out the lung, lungs really to get a, a proper picture on things. But, the practicalities of doing that are, are 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 very low, and if you if you're suspicious of, of lungworm in animals, really you can't be waiting around for uh, um, for for doing that procedure. So you know you really want to be listening for that that cough that comes from re real deep down in the bottom of their lungs, um, particularly if animals are aren't um, and after being moved, if they're standing still and you hear a lot of coughing going on, there's there's something. There's something not right, so um, we, we kind of, if we're ruling out other uh, pathogens like pneumonia or IBR, um, we, we want to be looking at, at lungworms and treating for those very quickly. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably my, uh, the biggest fear in our farm is, is the lungworm. So once every two weeks we do a, a, a fecal egg count on the calves, and um, yeah, that, that's something we, we kind of took on the last few years and um, yeah we, we just use that for, for the round worms and stomach worms so you can see here this is what you would see under the microscope when you um, these uh, little eggs are what we're looking for so we're currently going with a threshold of 250 eggs per gram and once we, we trigger that um, we start looking at dosing then and there's a, a guide to our, our, our eggs that's in our Actually, I suppose I should note that a uh, uh, canteen is probably not the best place to be doing it. <laughs> um, and I suppose we should point out that you're doing them yourself as well. Yeah. Now, I, look, I don't want to turn people off of, of doing fecal egg counts by, by advertising this. Um, like the, there's plenty of labs in the country providing a, a, a good service. It's not it's not expensive. So uh, yeah, the, that that's definitely something people should should really be taking on. Um, so this is our, our dosing equipment. Uh, you can see here on the right hand side that we, we've, as I was saying about the portable equipment, we have a, a, a pen set up in, in the in the paddock. Um, so we need to know what uh, what parasite we're looking at. So we use the right product and the right time. Then so we only do it as we need it and the right amount. So we need to know the calf's weights um, when we're going dosing. Um, so we, we do have a scales and we adjust, adjust the dosing gun in terms of heavier calves and lighter calves. Um, the refusal then, the, the recommended is to not do the top 10% of your calves. Now, right or wrong, we, we, our, last, our last dosing, we, did, we didn't do the top 25% of them. We didn't feel they needed it, so we didn't do them. Um, and they go out onto this corner here, which is what we call the dump paddock. So after the calves are dosed, they go through the gate of, of, and out onto this corner here, which is the dump paddock. So they expel any, any of the worms or, or um, eggs out onto that pasture there. Um, that corner then, you can see, is treated a bit differently. Um, you can see that the height of the grass, is it's quite stemmy. 
with don't graze it down tight it's it's a it's only a corner of a field every time calves are dosed they go out onto that for two days just to clean themselves out and it's treated extensively within an intensive system so the calves yeah the, the grass is, is never is never grazed down tight the calves never get the chance to graze it down tight it would have a very long rotation then so the calves aren't uh picking up are, are have a lesser chance of picking up parasites that have been hatched um from uh, uh, post dosing so um you can see here that that's the post grazing residue residual on it so you're looking at, at eight to ten centimeters um the dog is thrown in there because he's a bit of a poser um our heifers then uh, these are in calf heifers. They haven't been dosed since last October. They've seen nothing since last October, and they got um, it was three doses in total last year. Um, so we alternate the products when we are using them between on calves between levasamol and benzamidazole. So we'll start with levasamol early in the season um, to, um, to move on to the benzamidazoles later on in the season for reasons that Orla outlined there um, for overwintering um, larvae in, in, in animals. So um, this this is them again. So of course these are all Jersey crosses which are, are the best breed. Um, so <laughs> for in terms of, of ectoparasites or flies then we're trying to move away from using deltrametrins or spot-ons um, products. So we found the area that they're in you can probably see in the background there there's a lot of trees, the trees forest, yeah. forestry it's on the side of a mountain and there's a lake beside it so it's, it's a haven for flies so we, we found the deltrametrins weren't weren't doing a great job um out of 66 heifers in 2018 we had four of those calved down with, with a blind quarter and 78 came in last year Prior to using stock or post using Stockholm tar, and the 78 of them came in with four quarters. So the only thing about it is actually applying it. Um, so this is my wife's radiator roller, which is she's missing. Um, we use that to apply the Stockholm tar to the teats, and it will last anywhere from one week to four weeks, depending on weather conditions. So the more favourable weather conditions for flies, it'll last longer. But if you get he uh, wet and heavy heavy rain like we've had in the last few days it'll just wash it right off uh, so there is a bit of work with it so the quarantine drench then um <clears throat> so our herd is has been closed for quite a number of years but the last two years we brought in two bulls to run with the heifers when we finished ai and what we do with those two bulls we don't know their history we don't know what worms have been used on them we don't know uh, if there's animitic resistance on the farm they've come from or, or animitic resistance to certain products. And as Orla was saying there, the, the animitic resistance trait in the parasite is, is genetic. So we don't want to be buying that those uh, those genes into our farm. So what we do with the two bulls, uh, we bring them in, they're put into quarantine and they're given all three worm groups while they're indoors. So they get their levasamol, your benzamidazole and your your um your mectin while they're indoors uh, as well as of course looking after your, your ibr vaccine and whatever else needs to be done with them the idea that you're buying, is, them, you're buying them in early though bruce are you yeah that's that's the thing yeah you, you want to have them you want to have them ready to go 
um, for breeding. So look, if you're breeding on the 1st of May, you're really looking at the start of April, you want to have these bulls lined up um, and, and in the sheds. Um, so if, if a parasite, a particular parasite in, in, the, in the gut of, of the bull is resistant to benzimidazole, and down the line I want to use benzimidazole on my calves, I don't want that parasite out on, out on my pasture. So if, by using the mectin, I'm increasing my chance of getting rid of that parasite um, uh, significantly. So yeah, quarantine drench, um, a very important drench in my view. And I think, I think it's something to consider with moving in any animals off of, off of, um, off of farms, whether we, we think they need a worm dose or not, I, I think it's important to, to consider it. Um, typically then, um, those animals want to be moved out onto an, one of the orange paddocks then after they've, they've uh, had a quarantine drench to pick up the parasites that would have been, would, would be typical on my farm. Just tying um, in a jerk in the refugia scenario. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, so you're, you're not you're, you're re reducing the risk of of uh, an, uh, resistant um, parasite uh, reproducing. Um, so yeah, the cows then haven't had anything since 2017. No, no animatics, um, and they're performing quite well. We're, we're very happy with them. Um, it's a young a young herd, so um, we're, we're our performance wouldn't be up to where it could, where a mature herd would be, but we're still increasing from 432 kilograms of milk solids in 2017 to 449 in 2019. They're sold figures. Um, but like we are watching them. If I wouldn't see it as a failure if I did need to go in with uh, a prenomectin or uh, during the grazing season or to, to use a, a benzimidazole at dry off if I need to. Um, so I suppose a little bit then about my uh, my topic then for Nuffield, it's looking at the, uh, I suppose I, I could be accused as being a bit a bit left of centre, <laughs> looking at uh, looking at uh, different measures for um, reducing anamintics. So we're looking at the stage of the parasites in the we're continually looking at them in the in, within the animal, but like we're, we're, we're missing out on looking at the stage that they are in the dung part, which is an important stage which we haven't taken into um, addressing yet. So our dung beetles are public enemy number one for, um, for parasites in the dung part. So the, the dung beetles, what they do is they bury the dung part and they also dry it out, which is quite important as well. And they also carry around little um, mites on them that eat parasite eggs. So here I am, we're, we're trying to breed uh, more stock. Uh, I don't mean the kids now, that's already done. But uh, <laughs> um, we're trying doing to Doing well on that stock. count as well. Yeah, we're doing well there. <laughs> uh, they're cheap labor. Um, we're, we're trying to breed, breed up more dung beetles on the farm um, to uh, reduce the, um, the dung pats left on pasture. So here's here's where we're currently at with it. Um, there, yeah, the, like I said again, the lungworm being the biggest fear, the dung beetles, as I was, as I said, to they actually drink the moisture in the dung pats. So in doing so, that they would prevent this this um, fungus from growing. It's, it's um, they would be very good at doing that. Um, so. In terms of the Nuffield and what it has done, it, it look uh, the scholarships are, are 
currently open and I would I would encourage anyone that would consider um, going for enough field to actually go and, go and apply for it. It's um, it's a fantastic opportunity for um, increasing your, your leadership skills and personal development. And if you have something you, you feel like researching, it's it's a it's a great opportunity um, to do so. Um, so if you just log on to the the Nuffield website there, the applications are now open. So uh, yeah, that's that's basically me. Very good. So um, there's a couple of questions after coming in there, I suppose, and Orla, you'll be um, involved in these as well. Um, so just one second now. So I suppose going back to something that you touched on there, Bruce, as well, and just, well, you actually said you're doing more than that. Derek O'Donoghue in um, the Ag College in, in uh, Palace Kennery is asking about the not dosing the top 5 to 10% if they're exceeding their weight gain targets and not showing any symptoms. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that, I suppose, uh, Bruce? You, you've given us your opinion in terms of that you're doing it with the, with the calves already. So, Orla, maybe you might just comment on it, if you wouldn't mind, please. Yeah, so this is this is um, really about kind of improving the refugia because they're again another source of refugia. It's a way of increasing your your refugia on the farm, and particularly, you know, it can be it can be useful on farms that maybe you know if they've got different blocks of land and you maybe can't graze untreated mature animals with younger animals to provide refugia. It's a great way of providing refugia. Um, I suppose the one thing about it I'd say is that probably lambs are a little bit more susceptible to these parasites than, than calves. Um, we, we had a trial on this in, in Athenride that we, we carried out looking at this. Um, and it, it's something you'd want to be happy to do, you know, it may in lambs have a, a slight negative performance impact because they are so susceptible to parasites. So you'd want to be kind of monitoring the worm burden and not letting it get too high in those lambs that aren't treated. Okay, very good. And uh, I suppose just a point of clarification there for Sean McArdle, Bruce. Um, just ask you to unmute there again. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> was how long are the calves left in the dump paddock? I think it was two days you were saying after each dose. Yeah, was it? 48 hours. And I, I should have pointed out then that th those calves really should move on to an orange paddock. Uh, on my traffic light grazing system there that they're, they're going to somewhere that there is a, a level of parasite that you don't put them onto after grass where there's there's, there's a correct yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. you actually want them to get exposure again potentially yeah, just to try and improve the immunity yeah, yeah. okay and then um, I suppose again Orla maybe you might comment on this one so Conor O'Leary is just asking about in-calf heifers returning from contractor or would it be beneficial to bring them home house them immediately and follow what Bruce is doing there with the with the tree hitting them with all three families. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you pretty much want to do exactly what Bruce has just outlined there. So I suppose that is one of the concerns for cattle that unlike in sheep, where there's two new products on the market for which there's no reported resistance in Ireland, we don't have that in cattle. All of the three classes that we have, there's resistance somewhere. So if you don't know the status of the farm that, that is contract rearing, um, the heifers for you, the safest thing to do when you bring them in is to is to treat with uh, all three classes. Now, generally, that means treating them three times, um, because the the use you know the kind of they're they're available in other countries products that combine the three classes together, but they're generally not available in Ireland. So you need to treat with one, then the other, then the other. You can't mix them. 
Um, and then as, as Bruce outlined, you know, you want to house them or have a dung paddock or something for 48 hours to allow any eggs that have already been laid and are already in the gastrointestinal tract to pass out. So pretty much exactly what Bruce has outlined there is, is a good idea. Yeah, excellent. Look, we've gone a little bit over time there, but I think it was an excellent uh, session there with both of you. So thanks very much for joining us today. Um, I suppose just in terms of one simple direction for people, Orla, I'll put put the pressure on you. Bruce has uh, Bruce has kind of pointed to what he's doing, but in terms of what's your one main key advice to dairy farmers? I suppose the the sheep and beef people are probably more familiar with coming across you it's you're probably a new face to the dairy people and it's good to good to introduce you to them but in terms of a, a one-liner more or less of what they, we need to do in terms to minimize antimentic use or and resistance yeah so look it does come down to trying to reduce use um, so I think it is looking about where you can safely reduce your use I think there is there is plenty of evidence that they're being overused on cattle farms in Ireland that people are treating more than they need you know once a month and things like that so it's really about having a chat with your advisor chat with your vet um, and finding where are you happy to reduce your use my suggestion is probably in mature cows if they're being used in those older more immune animals but it may depend on your system but reduce use okay and I think uh, just to sum it up there Bruce pointed out like he's putting a big effort into trying to minimize use across yeah. all classes of stock but he's still not afraid to use it as as and i think the point i wrote it down as you said it it they have to be used as a treatment if necessary but we shouldn't be trying to use them as a preventative yeah and absolutely like that the whole point of slowing the development of resistance is so that they're there when we need them is so that when you do need them we have products that work so it's it's not about not using these products it's about using them only when they're needed and i think there is probably at, at the moment they're probably being used more than needed um, but nobody should be afraid to use them as needed. And that's absolutely crucial as well when it comes to lungworm. You know, it's so pathogenic that you can't really afford to take any chances. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. So, so thanks a million, Orla, and thanks to you, Bruce. Um, great to talk to you both. Um, just to tell everybody that the audio version will be available on the podcast with Emma Louise um, uh, from tomorrow or Monday. And uh, we'll welcome you back next week when we'll be talking about clover with two people, a person that has clover in on the farm with a good while and a person who started to introduce clover this year. So thanks very much, Orla. And thank you, Bruce. And take care, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. That's all for this week's Let's Talk Dairy webinar series. And don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week. I'll be back with our usual Dairy Edge interview on Monday. So do listen in then. I'm Emma Louise Coffey. And thanks for listening.